You know, things just aren't quite the same now that James is around the history lab less frequently. In fact, I don't even know if I'm gonna be able to find anyone to fill in for him in the first week of his absence. You know, it's just a sad thing when podcasts begin to peter out like this. They just... they just slowly fade away. Like old soldiers. And now I'm all alone in this history lab with a damn cat. Meow! And... I have nothing going for me. I might as well make a hot pocket, lie down, and die slowly. Wait. What's that I smell? What? Is that pipe smoke? Fuck, I guess James never left. It's coming from this closet. Ah, close the door, you're ruining my sauna. What the hell are you doing in there, George? I'm smoking a pipe, clearly. But, but like, in the glow of a PC surrounded by, uh, monster energy drinks. You know, life's hard, man, okay? The, uh, the deans were coming down on me pretty hard again, and I had to skip town and lay low for a while, and I figured, you know, where somewhere that erudite, educated, sophisticated... Deans would never look. Your lab. Yeah, the history lab. They don't like history, so they avoid the lab, right? Bingo. <laughs> well, I was just gonna make a hot pocket and lie down and die slowly. So is that your new co-host? A hot pocket? Or just your wretched sense of worthlessness and despair? I mean... I... <laughs> I guess the, the co-host could be a hot pocket. I, I don't know what to do with this show anymore. I'm too pathetic. <sighs> you get one little upset, you get one co-host leaving, and suddenly it's like Hiroshima and Nagasaki all over again. Well, let me tell you something, Aaron. What? Life sucks. Yeah? But you know what? Your life sucks less than the life of a great man whose name I would tell you if we had any idea what it was. And like me, he was a man... Who spent the last... Wait, these aren't my last days, are they? Well, they might be. Well, in any case, who spent some very significant days on the run, alone, despairing, without even the warm embrace of a hot pocket. Who? How? How could a man survive without a hot pocket? Let me tell you the story, my son, of the mad trapper of Rat River, who was also one of the most challenging bosses in Dark Souls, I think. <laughs> it's like, Jeez. this man has literally just been directly under a roof being blown off, and his reflexes are still so good that he can just, like, draw and snap off a shot at a guy coming in the roof. That's a really good point. I think, I mean... Like, I'm pretty sure you're supposed to be disoriented after somebody blows your house up. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and today's co-host, George. Say hi, George. That's not my real name. Hi. <laughs> 
We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway, or I should I should say George is going to try anyway. So George, who do we have this week? We have... <laughs> The Mad Trapper of Rat River. The Mad Trapper of Rat River? Did he have a real name? I don't know, probably. But <laughs> hell, if, hell if anyone knows what it was. So uh, tell me, what's he best known for? Well, he and as much as I would like to just chuckle darkly and call him the Mad Trapper of Rat River every time I mention him, his generally accepted fake name is Albert Johnson, because um, okay. that's the only fake name that he was ever actually used that we know of. Um, he was a medium-sized man, whatever the hell that means. Um, I'm guessing that means probably around 5'10", um, sort of slight to moderate build. He appeared to be in his late late 30s to early 40s. He was slightly crook-shouldered because he had scoliosis, and so his spine was kind of crooked. Oh, shit. Um, He had extremely sun-reddened skin, so it's kind of... uh, His skin was very leathery and hard from being out in the elements all the time. Yikes. Uh, He had a slightly upturned nose, a flat, broad face... Extremely pale blue eyes, and he spoke with a Swedish accent, according to the one witness who ever actually spoke to him. He also is recorded as having a very stiff face, and I'm going to quote directly here from a rather sensational newspaper article. As if he were constantly struggling with the hostility that came seething to the surface. Oh, jeez. I don't exactly know if you can quantify that, but that's what a very sensational newspaper article described him as. And lastly, he probably wasn't smiling because he was not a very friendly person. Oh, Um, yeah. The Mad Trapper isn't smiling very much. I can tell you that. One of the few quotes that we know he said is, I don't want people bothering me. I like to live alone. Wow. So not exactly a super warm character and it's funny we're telling this story today because this actually i have a i have sort of a personal memory involving this story this was oh god decades ago i was looking well i wasn't i was with someone who was doing some genealogy genealogy research and was looking for uh you know wedding announcements or birth announcements or death announcements or something in old microfilmed newspapers from the 30s and I was just, you know, messing around looking for interesting articles to read and actually found an article about this very thing, about the Mad Trapper, and read the whole thing, you know, on the microfilm machine and everything. And that was that was such a great relief because usually I was just bored out of my mind doing the genealogical stuff. But here I had an amazingly exciting newspaper article to read, which just had a great headline. You know, I think it was like mad trapper leads pursuit through frozen wilderness or something. Whoa. (laughs) See, this is why I asked you to cover him because all I know is what I saw in Wikipedia. And I don't even know that. Uh, But when you were telling, uh, George texted me, everybody, and he said, it's a goddamn travesty that you haven't had Albert Johnson on your show yet. And I was like, well, fuck, man, if you want to do it. (laughs) So here we are. And, uh, and I'm honestly really excited to see what you dug up because 
uh, as George has informed me, he's written more than I've written for a character since, like, friggin' Trotsky. Um, I don't know how he did it, but here we are, and, uh, I think we ought to just, we ought to just get this thing started. Sounds good to me. Okay, take it away. So, yeah, keeping in mind that description, um, we will now move on to the relevant facts about his life. So, he was born somewhere at some point and was named something. <laughs> and that concludes the relevant facts of his life. <laughs> we literally have no idea. No idea where he came from, who he was, when he was born. Wow. Yeah, so we'll get we'll get to some of the the possibilities and some of the things that can be narrowed down, but in terms of actual certainty, literally nothing. Literally nothing. So then where does the story begin? So the story begins at a tiny little trading post called Fort McPherson in northern Canada. And I'm going to send you a picture here with a map so you can just see how far north we're talking about. Uh, oh, shit, that's way further north than Wisconsin. <laughs> Significantly. It's about 50, 60 miles from the Arctic Ocean. Um, for reference, this place, Fort McPherson, its current record low temperature is negative 68 degrees. So this is not a hospitable place. Yeah, this is like an Arctic base. Yeah. So in July of 1931, a dude on a little raft floats into town on a river. <laughs> and uh, when he's asked, you know, who he is, he just says he's a trapper. He's not not real talkative, as we established. Mm -hmm. He says his name is Albert Johnson, and that's the only detail he says about himself to anyone at all. He So this dude just floated in on a raft? <laughs> yes. From where? <laughs> also a good question um, yeah. because of the few people he had to interact with he gave all of them different answers as to where he came from so they're not sure if he came from upstream or downstream like there's there's nothing wow so he says that he's a trapper and starts buying supplies for um a wilderness expedition over the next mm -hmm. few weeks um he spends $1,400, which that's well over $20,000 in uh, today's money. What what year was this? Um, 1931. Okay. So yeah, let's, let me do a quick math here. Yeah, so that's about twenty-two dollars to $23,000 in today's money, thanks to the inflation caused by the Federal Reserve. <clears throat> <laughs> so he buys a bunch of supplies, like a lot of supplies. Think how much camping supplies you could buy for, you know, $23,000. That's uh, that's at least that's at least a pair of hiking boots. That's a good. Uh, that's at least a good pair of hiking boots, and some mm -hmm. of that like top shelf jerky. Not like yeah. not like the crappy jerky. Like we're talking the real jerky. Oh yeah. And he buys a canoe, um, <laughs> among other things. Um, when he's paying, people can you know people can see that he's got like a pretty significant chunk of money with him as he you know mm -hmm. takes money out to pay. It seems to be it's at least several thousand dollars. So we're talking you know a lot of cash especially wow. for like the middle of the wilderness hypothesis he was a pirate who shipwrecked and floated in on a raft <laughs> no this could just break the whole case i mean <laughs> why, why did i not think of that <laughs> i yeah i mean i i don't I, I i i have no nothing to disprove that but could be a pirate <laughs> he, he may 
he may actually be a pirate. And we would Blackbeard returned from the dead. So he uh, tells a storekeeper that he's buying supplies from that he had come down the river from further north to pick up more supplies. So further north, that is a pretty desolate area. There's not yeah. a lot going on further north. Um, and that's, he, he's very, very frugal with the details. So a... Um, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, uh, their constable who was at the stationed at that little uh, trading post, uh, his name was Millen, Constable Millen, and he uh, he went to talk to the guy because, you know, a weird guy comes into town. You want to ask him where, you know, what, what he's doing there, what his business is. Um, and he tells Constable Millen that he had spent the last year working on the farms in the prairies to the south, in the plains of Canada, and was now going to come up north and be a trapper. So we've got, you know, north, south, not really the same thing. Um, so which one's true? Probably neither. Who knows? He uh, said, Constable Millen, nice, helpful chap, you know, Canadian, you know how those bastards are, said, uh, well, you know, let's uh, get you set up with a trapping license uh, so that you don't have to do the paperwork later. I can go and do that for you right now. And... Albert Johnson said no. He said he wasn't sure if he was going to be do any trapping, so he didn't want to get a license yet. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> so Constable Millen uh, told him to make sure he hired a guide um, because, you know, pretty much you get lost, you get hurt in this part of the world. Yeah, you're not you're not really walking out of that. It's um, really interesting because I, I, he buys all these supplies, you know, twenty thousand dollars or whatever. And then he's like, I'm not sure I'm going to go trapping. I'm just not sure. <laughs> I don't know if I buy that, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, um, he refuses to hire a guide, says, nope, nope, I'm good on my own. Um, he's very, very hostile to questions about him from Constable Millen. And here's, a, here's one of the few quotes from him that was in Constable Millen's report. You want to know all about me? All right. Well, I'm not staying here. And if I'm not staying here, you don't need to know about me. And Ooh, he man and, of mystery. And he left town. Um, he left. Oh. And, you know, that was that was last he was seen for a while. He took all his supplies and his canoe and everything and booked it out of town. Well, probably not booked it because it was, you know, northern Canada. It was probably more of a, a slow but steady progression. Um, I bet he was, like, pulling the canoe with all the stuff in it. You know, it's like a rope slung over his shoulder. Yeah. Mm, yep. Unless he took the canoe out of town. I mean. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Maybe can, he did. Must maybe, I don't know how how big canoes get because presumably, you know, twenty thousand dollars of supplies is a lot of stuff. I wonder if it all fits in the canoe. He bought the whole town. Yeah, <laughs> maybe he's so, carrying I mean, the town away in a canoe. Town is probably being overly generous if we're oh, going to be so. real about it. I'm surprised they had twenty thousand dollars worth of stuff to sell. Honestly, yeah. <laughs> what's the, wait, what's the name of this place again? Uh, Fort McPherson. Fort McPherson. I'm Which currently if... has a population of about 700. Okay. I want to see if I can find some pictures. Uh, Canada. Oh, shit. Is it this place with the white church? Um, the Anglican. Yeah, I think that's what it is. This place is... This is desolate. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have not looked at a picture, so I'm going to join you here. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> There's Holy crap. I don't it... know what I was expecting, but I don't think a massive Anglican church was it. <laughs> yeah, that that's like the size of the rest of the town put together. Jeez. 
Okay, sorry. I, that was a that was a rabbit's trail. Um, okay, so that was in July, and he's gone. Whatever. People probably forget about the weird dude with the Swedish accent and all the money. Mm-hmm. But then around Christmas, a one of the many uh, nomadic Indian tribes in that region. Um, it's a really shitty place to live, to be honest. And so most, <laughs> pretty much all the tribes are nomadic. You can't really have like permanent settlements. So mm-hmm. because you have to follow the caribou herds and you have to, you know, follow where where you can traverse the frozen areas. Um, so it's pretty much all the native groups are nomadic. So one of the tribes called the Lucho arrives in town around Christmas and they make a report that Albert Johnson, that dude, had set up a cabin about 50 miles away from Fort McPherson on the bank of the darkly chuckle rat river (laughs) they said that he was uh disabling their animal traps and trapping without a permit and that when they confronted him he threatened them with a rifle which i think that's just honestly how most people interact when you're a trapper in northern canada i think it's like (laughs) it's one of your like only social interactions is threatening people with a rifle if they touch (laughs) your traps but in any case (laughs) so they made this report um it's unclear if this actually happened or not, or because there was a, a decent amount of sort of rivalry among different trapping groups, both among um, native trappers as well as, you know, Canadian American trappers. And so they'd make false reports sometimes to try to mm. get people off their area that they liked. So who knows if this actually happened or not? But in any case, right, they actually, make a I, was, report. I was thinking that when you started, when you talked about the natives making a report, I was like, huh, it sounds like competition, which means that, you know, I get it. Yeah, so who knows? May have happened, may not have. That's the whole story of Albert yeah, Johnson. Essentially. Oh, some stuff really happened. Let me tell you what. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. So Millen, the guy who'd questioned him, sends another constable, uh, Constable King, and a, um assistant named Joe, um, who was a, a native scout and tracker, to check, at, check it out. Go up there, talk to Albert Johnson, see what the deal is. Um, so they go day after Christmas, um, they leave to go out there. They were actually, they knew exactly where the site was because he'd built his cabin on a, um, sort of a notable location. It was a clearing on the edge of the rat river, kind of in a bend. So the river, so, uh, sort of on two sides of it, Mm. it, it faces the riverbank. And during the Yukon gold rush, um, hundreds of prospectors who had actually wrecked on the rapids of the rat river. Um, while trying to get to the Yukon, ended up being stuck there over the winter, and tons of them died of diseases and exposure and starvation and stuff. And so that that bend in the river was known as Destruction City. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where that's where Albert Johnson had built his cabin. <laughs> he built his house in Destruction City. That's amazing. <laughs> so they so you so the constables knew exactly where they were going because they were told, oh yeah, he built his cabin on Destruction City. It's like, oh okay know where that is so they leave the day after christmas um as i said it's about 50 miles away but that's 50 miles as the crow flies Mm -hmm. and so to actually get there is about 80 miles because more or less you have to travel on the frozen rivers during the winter that's pretty much the only place that is passable is on the ice of the rivers so the rivers and streams become pretty much the road system of northern canada and so taking the rivers the about 80 mile trip to get there Jeez. So it took three days. So they get there on the third day, and it's a tiny cabin. It's about eight foot by ten foot. That's really small. 
<laughs> yeah, that's like a clo- I have a closet bigger than that. Yeah, that's like the uh, half the size of like my dorm room when I was a freshman. Jeez, Jeez. and he's yeah. got to keep in all. He's got to keep his trapped animals in there with him. Not yeah, so there, it's but. and the snow level is about um, two thirds of the way up the walls. Um, is what the sitting snow level in the area around it is at. Jeez, can you imagine? Like it, everyone complains about the winter, and they're like, ah, just. I'm sitting inside, I need to put on another sweater. And you can just imagine this guy, like, wrapped in bear skins, clambering out of, the, <laughs> out of his little snow fort. Like, ah, oh, it's good to be alive. <laughs> Damn, it feels good to be a trapper. <laughs> so, the con- Constable King um, approaches the cabin, he's got to get his snowshoes on to walk over the snow. Um, and he gets to the door and you know the snow sort of you know falls away right at the edge of the cabin because the drifts build up around it so you know you kind of climb down to where the door is mm-hmm. and he knocks on the door and calls out you know announces his name who he is no answer but there was smoke rising from the little chimney so he knew he had you know somebody had to be there um plus hmm. i mean where the hell else are you gonna go and there's like 10 feet of snow on the ground <laughs> right you just sit inside with your xbox <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah 360 no scope noobs. <laughs> You're just sitting there playing split screen with the local raccoon. Like, <laughs> it oh, loses, it wow. starts Man, jabbering. I at miss you. split screen. Dude, don't you? I miss split screen too. Those were the days. Split screen Halo 1 with the guys. Yes. Oh, that and one, the raccoon. That one map that it was like the two big spaceships pulled up next to each other. Ooh. And so you could sort of shoot at all pretty much all the levels of each spaceship from anywhere in the other spaceship that was mm. nuts God, yeah that was times. a good map and just to make that tangent a little bit more stupid i actually didn't get to play much halo until halo 3 came around because i didn't have an xbox so i missed out on all that but i was playing split screen like 007 Nightfire. you know that was that was my jam ah idyllic youth <laughs> so he's uh he's he's there he's there okay presumes that Albert Johnson is inside playing split screen with the raccoon. He's banging on the door. There's no answer. So he's like, well, maybe I'll just walk around, look at the cabin, you know, get a feel for what's good, what's going on here. Mm-hmm. So he sees that the cabin is built into the gravel riverbank. Like a lot of times um, cabins in areas like that, because of all the frost heave, um, what they do is they drive big logs into the ground and then, so you've got sort of got posts that you then build the cabin on top of those posts. Um, you don't actually build the foundation in the ground because of how much the ground heaves and moves with the frost. You mm-hmm. actually build on a post. But this wasn't like that. This was sunk right into the gravel of the riverbank. Like it was dug deep down into the stone. That's kind of kind of weird. <laughs> so this is and um, its roof is uh, made out of sod. And since it's, you know, ridiculously cold the saw you know sheets of sod are frozen like concrete and between the logs um he also has you know sod which is just frozen like stone and he also notices that there are loop there are loopholes at various points around the wall um you know the gun gun ports to shoot through there are little oh, rifle ports built into the walls that cover every angle of approach to the cabin like oh that's kind of weird but okay well, I mean, you're not going to be able to see much today, but in the summer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weird, weird flex, but okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there there are all these loopholes for uh, 
for Johnson. Um, so he's wandering around, like wondering what this is. And there's a little window in the door and he gets back to the door. And so he decides to look through the window and uh, once again, calls out, you know, who he is and what he's doing there. And he sees Johnson sitting in there, just sitting, stares back at him. He's just knocking on the window like, yo, dude, I'm the police. We need to talk. And Johnson's just sitting in there, just staring at him, not saying anything. That's kind of freaky. Yeah. And so um, Constable King, he doesn't have a search warrant or anything because he was just going to come up here to resolve this trapping dispute. And so he thought this would just be sort of like, yeah, OK, we'll talk about it. We'll figure out what the deal is. So he didn't get a search warrant or get any sort of official like authority to do anything. So he has to leave to go get it. So to get a search warrant, he has to go to where the like regional superior of the Mounties of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is who can sign off on that. And that's 80 miles away in the town of Aklavik. Wow. So, so that's another 80 miles on the river. <laughs> yeah. So he's got to go 80 miles to Aklavik to find Inspector Ames, who's the superior of the Mounties in that, uh, in that region. So he's got to go 80 miles and 80 miles back. So 160 mile round trip to get a search warrant. Just to so, get into this guy's little shed. <laughs> yeah. So he's back on December 31st. Um, However, after he'd told Ames about the uh, the cabin's sort of weird design and, like, the fact that it was kind of fortified and mm. that its inhabitant was pretty unnerving, Ames was like, yeah, this this might be something, and gave him two more men to bring with him, a, another constable named McDowell and another Indian guide named Lazarus. So there's now four of them. There's Constable King, Constable McDowell, and then the two Indian guides, Joe and Lazarus. Wow. This is this is starting to ramp up. <laughs> <laughs> so they go back, you know, 80 miles. They get there. King and McDowell, so the two constables, approach from... Uh, they both approach the front, but from different angles. And Lazarus scouts around the back of the cabin, and Joe stays at the river with the dogs. Because if your dogs run away and leave you stranded out there... Yeah. 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 So smoke's still coming from the chimney. And as an aside, it's about 50 degrees below zero. Um, Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So King goes to the door and he's banging on the door, demanding that Johnson opens up and still nothing. So he starts kind of shoving the door with his shoulder, you know, the, the old forceful body knock. And he says he has a search <laughs> warrant. And then if he doesn't open up, he's going to break the, the door down. And as he starts trying to break the door down, a bullet comes through the door and into his ribs, causing him to fall back into the snow. Oh, no. And he sort of staggers and crawls away as more bullets are pierced through, start piercing through the door, and McDowell then opens fire on the cabin to try to provide some cover and distract the shooter while King crawls away. So King's able to crawl away um, back down into the stream. So you've got to imagine the stream is sort of sunken below, and then you climb up a bank, and then you're in the flat area where the cabin is. So if you're in the riverbed, you can't get hit from the cabin, basically. Okay, so you've got some cover. Yeah, so they get the, he crawls back into the stream. Um, and so they band, the party bandages him up, um, and they they wrap they literally like roll him up in furs in like a bundle and tie him to a sled and start their retreat. Um, so Joe, Lazarus, and McDowell go they do not stop to rest at all they travel 24 hours straight day through the whole day and the whole night 
in order to get King back to Aklavik. Um, and they, at times they would carry the sled by hand so that they could take shortcuts over difficult terrain between frozen streams. And wow. so this, this is a rough 24 hours. But yeah, no they shit. make it 80 miles. They arrive safely, and King, Constable King actually survives. The bullet um, narrowly missed his heart and lung, and his stomach w- was punctured. And a lot of times that means you get an infection and die. Mm-hmm. But, and this, this is a sort of great part of the story, he didn't get an infection because his stomach was completely empty because he had been in a big hurry to try to get to the cabin, serve the search warrant, and get back because there was a big New Year's party that he wanted to go to. I think it was actually, it might've been at the Anglican church um, in Aklavik. Um, I can't remember. So don't quote me on that, but it was a big, it was like, you know, a big new year's party. um, And, you know, the social scene at these remote villages in the North can be a little dull. So when there's a new year's party, man, you want to go there. And so because of that, he had, and because he was the the you know the leader of the little party, he'd only let, let uh, the expedition stop to eat once on the first day of the way there and so they'd been going over a full day without food when they get there and he gets shot Jeez. um but because of that his stomach was completely empty and so it was it was like the wound was very clean and he didn't get an infection wow what are the freaking odds <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so um and then uh they're there we're now moving on to my next section of my uh, my notes which is called attempt two: too fast too frigid <laughs> um the pre the previous section we just talked about of the first expedition i had titled johnson's war had begun at last that's <laughs> uh, so funny the the uh the what is it the chad fasting mountie versus the virgin hot pocket eater in a shed <laughs> amazing <laughs> so um Obviously, this is kind of a uh, this has escalated pretty substantially now that like somebody's been shot, and it's not just like a weird dude who may be setting off people's traps. So, Inspector Ames, the district uh, sort of conspirator officer of the Mounties, uh, he immediately forms a new posse, which consists of McDowell, Joe, and Lazarus, who presumably are really tired. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> himself, good good man, leads from the front, mm-hmm. and three trappers from the backcountry. Named Ernest, Carl, and Knud. Knud. <laughs> Knud. Yeah, I love these names. I also, I also love like you know, ye olden wilderness days when everyone was kind of like part of the police. Like if they wanted you to be, yeah. it's like, hey, we've got to go siege a crazy man in a cabin. Let's just round up the guys. <laughs> Me and the boys going after the mad trapper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just forming a posse. I think that's my favorite thing about this story so far and how you're framing it is just the, the you know, the Wild West lifestyle, you know? It's it's really interesting. Different kind of motivations, different kind of people. Um, you just, you've, in a, in a scene like that, you cut out a lot of the bullshit that modernity has to deal with. It's just like, yep, there's a crazy guy in a cabin. Get your guns. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so they form they form this new posse, and um, Ames thinks that um, bringing some of the trappers along will make things easier because he figures Johnson, probably not super trusting of, you know, police and stuff, kind of a loner dude, and he thinks maybe bringing sort of some of his type of people, these, you know, hardy, rugged backcountry types, will, mm. uh, will sort of 
ease the ease the process of capturing him and that he'll go well, along. That's a decent plan because I would have just been like, all right, let's go get the guns and just shoot the place up. <laughs> but the inspector was like, let's try and negotiate. And I, man, good on him. Yeah, I mean, I would say thinking on your feet, but I think it's more like thinking on your sled. <laughs> they set out um, this this new, larger expedition. Mm -hmm. um, sets out to try to reason with Johnson and get him to surrender. However, in case that didn't work, they also brought 20 pounds of dynamite. Uh, what? <laughs> okay. I mean, go big or go home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you gotta be, you gotta, you know... Plan for the best or prepare for the worst, whatever, whatever the hell it is. Um, hope for the best. <laughs> We're gonna it. just blow up this guy <laughs> eating hot pockets with a raccoon. <laughs> gonna, gonna ruin his KD ratio. Yep. <laughs> so they're, uh, they're, yeah, they're ready. They're ready. So at the first camp they make um, on their journey, they're joined by Constable Millen, who'd come from Fort McPherson. Um, that's the guy who had sent Constable King for the first attempt to talk to him and had um, actually the only one who'd ever actually talked to Albert Johnson when he questioned him when he came into town. So he had been informed by a radio message um, sent from an amateur radio station run for fun by a couple of soldiers stationed in Aklavik. Um, he'd heard from there that they were do that they were going after this guy. And so he thought, oh, maybe I can help since I've actually talked to him. You know, I'm the only, literally the only one who's ever actually interacted with this person. So it might be helpful for me to be there. So he, hmm. he sleds up as well. Like all that's awesome. Get the gang together. <laughs> so inspector Ames was worried that Johnson might try to ambush them, um, along the river, because as I said, because the rivers are pretty much the only means of easy travel. It's really mm -hmm. predictable the routes people are going to take, and it's if you're on the river, it can be hard to get off it because the banks are sometimes very high. So mm -hmm. it's kind of a dangerous area. So he's afraid that Johnson is going to ambush them. So he hires a, another native scout to take them on a sort of hidden overland route that avoids the river. Unfortunately, this proved to be kind of a disaster, and it's unsure why. Um, the guides might just not have been very good. It could have been just because of how dark it was while they were trying to travel. It could have mm. been blizzard conditions. It's unclear what happened, but they missed the turnoff and they overshot the objective significantly. And so it wasn't, and they have to turn around and try to get back on track. And so they don't make it to the cabin until the eighth day. So keep in mind, this is supposed to be a three day trip and it takes them eight days. Wow, man. You're just, you're just going through the wilderness with your snowshoes and your, uh, <laughs> Your freaking rifle just pushing through the snow it's, for three days or eight days. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so they only went at that point. They only had two days left of food for the dogs. Um, so they have 42 dogs to pull all their sleighs because remember, it's oh, a pretty man. big expedition. And so they make it to the cabin around noon on this eighth day. They take a position on the riverbank. So they're kind of strung out along those banks. So they're behind mm -hmm. cover, but facing the cabin. They can hear they can hear you know some just sounds of activity from within like uh, you know pots and pans or whatever like they can tell there's somebody inside. He's making another hot pocket. He is he is going all out on the hot pockets. Inspector Ames announces his presence and demands Johnson come out and surrender. And this is this is great. I love how old timey this is. And he assures him that the since the man he had shot had survived, there would be no serious legal threat to him. They just <laughs> wanted to talk still. It's like yeah. You shot one of my officers, but he survived, so, you know, we'll work it out. 
We'll, we'll, we'll overlook it a little bit. I mean, he's gonna, he's fine. He's a little holier than he was before, but he's, you know, it's okay. <laughs> Just gonna, you know, cut him, cut him some slack. Cut him some slack here. We know these things happen. And who has it better to gun battle with the police at least once? <laughs> yeah, to be fair. So they've announced, and do you think Johnson answers this notable blabbermouth Albert Johnson who just never shuts up? Do you think he answers? No. I think he just stares at the wall and just holds his raccoon a little tighter. <laughs> <laughs> so no answer, as one has grown to expect. And Ames just keeps shouting, and he says... Not only do they have the Mounties there, but they also have trappers. So he's hoping that, you know, we brought some of the guys along. Still no answer. <laughs> so Ames gives the order to advance on the cabin. But as soon as they leave cover and start advancing over the snowpack towards the cabin, rifle fire erupts from one of the gun ports on the, in the cabin wall. So the assault squad, so they all drop down into the snow, lying down, and they all start returning fire with their rifles, sort of slowly advancing, you know, like using bushes and shrubs and ripples in the snow as cover as they're all sort of converging on the cabin two of them make it all the way to the door and they use their rifle butts to smash in the door but as soon as the door caves in they come under fire from inside the doorway so they have to retreat um so everybody pulls back and aims from the riverbank sort of examines the situation and with the door smashed in he can see that inside the door there's a wall, a little, you know, we're talking, this is a 10-foot cabin, so presumably like five feet in from the doorway, there is a wall built inside the cabin made of two rows of large logs sunk straight into the ground, behind which Johnson was standing in a five-foot-deep trench he'd built in his cabin. So this is a this is a eight-foot by 10-foot cabin, and he has a five-foot-deep defense trench covering the door. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Ames once again calls for him to surrender and uh, Johnson just opens fire at them and they uh, open fire back at him and you just kind of have some gunfighting. Um, in order to use their guns, obviously you need your fingers. And so they had they couldn't wear the really heavy mittens they wear when they were traveling. They only can wear the smaller gloves they wear underneath them. So after the gunfight's been going on for a while, the police and trappers and Indians start to actually get frostbite on their hands because it's negative 50, and Ugh. the men are getting frostbite. And this is through one... This is because one pair of wool gloves is, is you know, not sufficient. Yeah. Literally, you know, developing frostbite quickly through a pair of gloves because of how cold it is. Holy shit. And you're, and you're in a gunfight and you probably haven't eaten and you just traveled for eight days. <laughs> Crazy. You know, I think about that. Here's here's an interesting thought. I, I go outside in Chicago and it's like negative 20 and I can barely stay out there for five minutes, let alone eight days in twice the cold. That's just insane to me. It really is something. Ames, the inspector, realizes that, you know, they're in a kind of a bad way with people getting frostbite and stuff. And so he calls a retreat into the riverbank and they set up a camp and build some fires right on the bank. And, you know, they have they have guys watching the cabin, obviously. The fire was necessary not only to prevent them from losing fingers to frostbite, it had another purpose. It was so cold there 
that the dynamite needed to be thawed out before you could use it. You literally had to defrost the dynamite. So they, they're like <laughs> wrapping the dynamite in coats and then like putting it close to the fire and kind of like, you know, played chicken. It's like, how close can we put the dynamite that it will yeah. thaw quickly, but it won't blow up? Jeez. <laughs> so they're, they're like, you know, played chicken with the dynamite in the fire trying to thaw it out. When you really got to blow a motherfucker up. <laughs> I didn't even know dynamite needed to be defrosted first, like uh, like Hot Pockets, actually. Yeah, actually, a lot like a Hot Pocket. That's what they should do. They should lure him out with Hot Pockets. <laughs> Spicy Hot Pocket. <laughs> or Forbidden Hot Pocket. <laughs> forbidden Hot Pocket. So they're, they're all there, like, trying to save their fingers and thawing out their dynamite and stuff. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, not, it's not looking great. Not great, not terrible. Um, mm -hmm. So Ames prepare, once they get some of the dynamite thought, he prepares a, which is only described as a small charge. I don't really know what small means in terms of dynamite, <laughs> but it's allegedly a small charge to just try to blow one wall off the cabin <laughs> so that he would be open to fire on two fronts through the door and through the wall and would be forced to surrender. So, that's the, the, so, the, so the plan is, is still to try and take him alive. Yes. Even after all of this? <laughs> yes. Again, eight days and negative 50. Your dynamite is freezing. <laughs> How do you not want to kill the guy? That's the, the Mounties are something else. Yeah. So at this point, they make the small charge. They, um, they throw it against at, at the base of the wall from behind cover. It lands right at the base of the wall. It blows up. And does basically nothing because of how ridiculously, like, thick the walls of this cabin were. It knocked some of the, like, sod that was between the logs loose. Mm -hmm. But that was pretty much it. The cabin just, it's, it's still there, just standing like a stone wall. Albert Johnson's inside in his trench. Just <laughs> like... A mighty cabin is our god. <laughs> Flashbacks to World War I. <laughs> yep. So, they're, uh, like... Oh, oh! I, I like to think I can just imagine the the expressions of people's faces where they've literally like thrown dynamite at this shed and it's just done nothing. <laughs> it's hard to imagine like the emotion that would come with that. You're like we're finally gonna get this guy. Boom! It's still there. They just resume the gunfight. Um, of you know, him in his trench, them on the riverbank, and so at around midnight. So this is twelve hours into the siege. One of the trappers, Kdud, um. He runs through the gunfire to get to the other side of the cabin and climbs on the roof in order to plant a charge and blow the roof off the cabin to try to force Johnson out. <laughs> you so do he, you, Knud. He, he climbs up to the top of the roof and sort of places the charge on one side, um, you know, because the roof is slanted. So he places it on one side, so he then crawls down the other side and sort of hangs right on the edge so that he's out of the way of the explosion, but he's still on the roof. Um, he's going he's gonna to blow up the roof while he's on it? Yes. Because, <laughs> well, he's, he's, you know, it's a, you know how roofs are. There are two sides that come together slanting. So he's placed the charge on one slanted side and he's on the other slanted side. I don't know. I think I'd still feel pretty unsafe. <laughs> I mean, just... you've just been in a 12 hour gunfight, man. Like the <laughs> adrenaline's pumping. I guess that's true. So he, you know, he's got gets his dynamite planted. He, cl he crawls over to the edge. And the charge goes off, blows up hole in the roof doesn't take off the whole side but it blows a large chunk of the roof out and knud crawls back over to the edge of the like smoldering flaming hole to get a view inside and looking over the edge he sees johnson just in his trench 
with a revolver in one hand, a sawed-off shotgun in the other, and two rifles sitting beside him, a twenty-two and a thirty-thirty. Holy crap. Uh, they made eye contact, and Knud jumps back from the hole just in time to avoid a lightning-fast shot from Johnson's revolver. It's like, Jeez. this man has literally just been directly under a roof being blown off, and his reflexes are still so good that he can just, like, draw and snap off a shot at a guy coming in the roof. That's a really good point. I think, I mean... Like, I'm pretty even... sure you're supposed to be disoriented after somebody blows your house up. <laughs> A little bit. The but hot pocket not, runs strong. Not Albert Johnson. No, apparently not. <laughs> so what then? What then proceeds is um, basically my fa- one of the best parts of this. So they throw flares around the cabin because it's you know it's dark um, in order to illuminate the scene, um, and they are hoping to be able to get a view of Johnson through the door or as it, through the chinks between the logs that were loot them from the sod that was blown out by the dynamite and they're also just making dynamite grenades and just throwing them at the thing and so they're knocking bits of the cabin off and you know sod is coming off but the the actual structure is still mainly standing but because johnson's down in his trench even with their light and even with you know view through the logs they still can't get a shot at him because he's in his trench in the in the floor um right so um ames orders a fake charge the guys to sort of all pretend to be charging in one direction to distract Johnson while he was going to try a flanking maneuver to try to get around to the other side without Johnson knowing there was anyone to the other side in hopes that he'd be able to then sort of come around and surprise him. But Mm -hmm. despite the gunfire and the explosion and the noise of the assault, Johnson could hear the sound of Ames snowshoes coming around the side of the cabin and moved over to that gun port and drove him back. Wow. Through the, wow. (laughs) Must've been quiet out there. Well, they're presumably not because they're like is in the middle of a gunfight and they're throwing dynamite. I just like to think it's just one of the the many mysteries of Albert Johnson. All right, I prefer it that way too. You're right. <laughs> um, so at 3 a.m., they ran out of dynamite. Um, so they have expended 20 pounds of dynamite at this cabin. <laughs> <laughs> so they threw the Jeez. last dynamite grenade. Didn't really do anything. Big surprise. They're kind of used to it at this point. And so they get together a charge and. They have one big electric flashlight and their plan is they're going to charge at the door. It's pretty much completely dark and they're going to turn it on right as they get to the door so that it will, you know, blind Johnson inside and they'll be able to see him, but he'll be disoriented. Hmm. Um, So they make their charge when they're just a couple yards from the door. They turn the light on, but within a second of the light coming on, Johnson uh, shot the light out of there, out of the out with the revolver. Jeez. So, you know, they've just turned on an electric light, like, you know, five yards away from him, and they've been in a gunfight in complete darkness, and he's just able to whip out the revolver and shoot the light out. This guy is really mysterious. (laughs) Yeah, so with now no light and essentially no progress made, Ames recalls everybody to their camp on the riverbank to plan, and they sort of take stock and see, so they've only got one day's worth of supplies left. The temperature is negative 50. Everyone has frostbite, and they're 80 miles to from Aklovic, so they begin their 80-mile retreat. Whoa, so Johnson won for now. So Johnson has just won an engagement with, like, eight or nine people with dynamite in his shed. They fucked up his <laughs> roof, though. Yeah, they did, they did put a big hole in his roof, um, and they knocked a lot of the... 
facade chinking from between the logs. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's uh, acceptable losses on his yep. part. I'm, I'm going to say it right now. This, the case for me is getting stronger that this man was a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> so they uh, get to Aklavik after what I can only imagine was a pretty miserable 80 miles. Since mm-hmm. now they probably all have frostbite. They probably all have tinnitus. Um, oh, yeah. They're probably very demoralized and very hungry. So they get to Aklavik. And so they get fresh supplies, additional men, including soldiers with grenades, and they make homemade gas bombs, and they set out for the cabin once again, still having no idea who this man is that they're trying to arrest. At this point, they have to have missed the New Year's party. Yes, at this point, they they have definitely missed the New Year's party. It's also at this point that um, radio transmissions uh, from Canada start to actually put together this story about the siege and convey it to other places. And so news articles actually start to appear all over the world. And it was one of those news articles that I read uh, when I was a kid in the microfilm because they, you know, it's like, wow, we just had a unsuccessful siege of a shed. (laughs) (laughs) By, you know, by Canada's finest versus one man who we don't even know who it is in a eight by 10 foot shed. Like what is going on? And so this was like a sensational news story that, you know, like was being written about in other countries about this. That's, and this is when he's given the name, the mad trapper of rat river. I mean, imagine like getting little drip feeds of information back then. Like you, f- you find out that there's a siege on this shed you find out that the record goes back to a, a guy trying to help a stranger get a trapping license. That guy also bought $20,000 worth of hunting and trapping equipment. It would just be so bizarre. It just gets more and more bizarre as the story goes along. Exactly. Yeah, Hmm. so it's no no wonder that this is just became like a sensational story because it's just so absurd. Mm Mm-hmm. So... They've got this big expedition now with their grenades and their soldiers and their, like, homemade gas bombs. And they uh, they arrive at the cabin, which is honestly in pretty shitty condition. You know, its roof was blown off. <laughs> like, it's the walls are scorched and burned and there's, you know, the chinking's all gone. It's, it's in pretty shitty condition. Yeah. But Johnson is not there. Um, of course not. So they, no go, roof. they finally get to go into the cabin and they find his trench system which not only was the trench in front of the door but he also had little bunkers dug out in front of each of his loopholes which he insulated with branches and he had fires built in uh, position built in the cabin which were positioned in specific places in order to direct warm air through channels he dug into his little bunker areas like i don't know where the guy like slept since this is a 10 by 8 foot cabin that he apparently has a whole like trench system in okay pirate pirate thing is (laughs) falling apart a little bit (laughs) um i'm starting to go with uh spy who got out so they um yeah they're just amazed and stunned by this complicated defense system and also like you can't build the thing like this overnight so who's this dude that he felt the need when he built his cabin to also incorporate you know the maginot line inside it yeah <laughs> uh that's that i'm telling you he's a spy <laughs> he's definitely so a spy so they found um 
They found no furs, so it didn't look like he'd actually been doing any trapping. They found no documents of any kind, so nothing that could give him a clue to who he was. All they found inside were shell casings and some scraps of caribou meat. It was the wow. only thing inside the cabin. That's that's kind of weird. <laughs> so they, uh, this group, they set up camp at the uh, at the mouth of the of the Rat River because um, they're they're certain that Johnson could not be very far away since it's the middle of winter. He has no sled. He has no dogs. So he you know he can't be traveling long distances overland. In their minds, it's just impossible. So they comb the area, you know, this big posse, and they don't find anything. They keep going. The days of just looking, not finding a single trace of him. So Ames withdrew most of the posse because he realized that with, you know, as many guys as they had out there, they're going to run out of food really quickly. Mm -hmm. So he takes the main force away and he leaves Inspector Millen or Constable Millen, sorry, and two of the trappers including Carl, one of the guys from the original shootout. Um, mm -hmm. And so those three, plus a soldier, one of the soldiers named uh, Riddle, those four guys, those are they're left there at this sort of forward camp to continue searching, and the main group returns to Aklavik. You know, I've just got this image of like a, of a aerial shot of the mad trapper charging across the snow, like running, and you can just hear the Johnny Cash, you can run on for a long time. <laughs> Nice. Oh man, nice. <laughs> good yeah, stuff. So just, <clears throat> I can only imagine the types of things these guys were thinking at this point. Like, what oh, the yeah. hell have we gotten into? This yeah. is supposed to be an easy conversation with a grumpy trapper. Yeah, <laughs> but now they're like all grizzled and frozen, and they're just like angry. They want to bring him in. You know, this is yep. montage material right here. <laughs> so there, these four continue the search and. They found um, some, like, hidden stashes of, like, dried and salted caribou meat, um, which they believed Johnson had stored to come back for. And so they, they'd, like, watch them for days, but he never came back. Um, they would sometimes seem to find a, find, a, find a trail that must be his, and they'd start to follow it, but they'd lose it. They're just, the trails never made sense. They never connected where they should. It was just, they're just floundering in this search. Jeez. And what it turns out is that Johnson's technique was ridiculous. He would only travel on hardened ice and on the most frozen ridges of the snow where he wouldn't leave any tracks. So like right at the edge of a bank where the wind has turned it to ice, he would only walk in those places. And at night, what he would do is he would walk up a snowy stream bed off one of the main frozen rivers because you don't leave tracks on the frozen rivers but in the stream beds where there's snow drifted you would leave tracks so he'd walk up one of those leaving normal tracks until he had got far enough in that he'd spot a good place to camp overlooking the stream and then he would reverse his course back on the ice no more tracks and then using ice and hardened snow he would make his way all the way around and approach the chosen campsite from the other side. So he would leave no trail from his tracks between his tracks in the stream bed and his actual campsite. And he would also only choose places that had a good vantage point. So he basically had like a sniper's roost over the only bits of track he left, which didn't actually lead to him. Spy. Spy <laughs> who knew too much and got out. <laughs> <laughs> so the their working theory at this point based on the direction he's going, is that he's headed for the Richardson Mountains, which that's the northern part of the Continental Dividing Range. 
Mm-hmm. And on the other side of that is some flat is, you know, the land descends. And then in a little bit after that, you have the U.S. border of Alaska. And so they think he's trying to get to the U.S. Um, to escape the Mounties. So that's the, that's what they're thinking anyway, based on the direction he's going, because there's not really anything else in that direction. Um, <laughs> but there's this massive mountain range in the way, the Continental Divide. Um, right. And so now we come to my next chapter of my notes, which I have titled Ice Jam 2 Arctic Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> Ice Jam 2. Very good. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was proud of that one. So, shit's cray. Um, <laughs> by now, it is January 28th, 1932. So, the party, that the four guys, um, picked a, up a bit of a trail, and they sighted a wisp of smoke on the horizon in the distance. Uh-oh. So, one of the trappers and the soldier, um, Riddle, they cautiously approach, and they come to sort of the edge of a cliff, and down, uh, or sort of a steep bank kind of cliff thing. Um, and they look over the edge, and they can see into a big patch of thicket um, in a s- surrounded by flat, snowy area. And in the center of the thicket, they saw Johnson with a campfire. Um, but they couldn't see any tracks in or out of the thicket, because, you know, Johnson doesn't leave tracks unless Johnson wants to. Right. Um, but this is, like, right at dusk, and so it's getting dark... And they don't think they'd be able to get a very clear shot at him because it's very hazy. And they decide not to fire because they want to shoot him in the leg or something to wound him because kind of like, this is great. This basically came up as they're like on the cliff with their rifles. They realize, so this is a trapper and a soldier, that neither of them had actually been deputized or given any actual legal authority. (laughs) And so they... You know, they can't actually just shoot him because they wow. they're just, you know, the one's a soldier and one's a trapper. Neither one is a policeman and they weren't given a, you know, a, any kind of deputy status or anything. And so they're afraid that if they try to shoot him in the dark, they might accidentally like make a headshot and kill him and be liable for manslaughter because mm-hmm. they, you know, had no technical legal right to shoot him whereas if they injure him as we've established shots that don't kill people pretty much a non-issue in northern canada at this point right so they you know so they decide and also if the you know if they shoot and miss he's probably going to run for it and who knows if they're ever going to catch up to him again which that was how much these different factors played in the decision i don't know but those are the those are the things that made them decide not to try to shoot wow so those two return to where the rest the other two are camped and then at dawn, they return with Millen and the other trapper. But they don't see Johnson anywhere as they're looking over the cliff at the thicket. They see the fire just barely smoldering. They don't see any trail out of the thicket since it's flat snow around it. So they think Johnson must be sleeping somewhere in a hidden spot and they just can't see him. So Millen sends the soldier, Riddle, and one of the trappers to circle around to the other side of the thicket and wait in ambush. While he and the other trapper are planning on rushing down the slope noisily, you know, kind of sliding down the snowbank, hoping that all this noise will wake up Johnson, he'll panic, and he'll run the opposite way right into the guys they have ready to ambush him. Yeah, so that, but hang on. This is this is Albert Johnson. He doesn't run from nobody. <laughs> he also apparently, like, has superhuman senses. <laughs> since he yeah. could, like, hear <laughs> snowshoes while literally having dynamite thrown at his house. Yeah. <laughs> 
So that's that's the plan, as plans go. It's it's not bad. It's not bad. Not bad. Yep. <gasps> so the Millen and the Trapper rush down, and the ambushers on the other side, they see Johnson pop out from sort of like a hollow he'd made in the snow and dive into a trench in the snow, from which he then emerges in a natural bunker, which was formed by an upturned tree whose roots had pulled up mounds of gravel and frozen earth around them when it fell. So he built like a tunnel through the snow into the center of this frozen dirt, rock, and root ball. (laughs) And so Millen shouts at Johnson to put down his rifle and surrender. No answer. So Millen and the trapper begin advancing on the tree when Johnson opens fire. Big surprise. And the party opens fire in response. After a moment, the firefight stops, and so they think, oh, maybe they hit him, and they begin to go towards the tree once again, but then the sunlight gleams off a gun barrel sticking out down among the lower roots. So not only did he have his little bunker he could pop up from and shoot, he'd also made a hole through the frozen dirt lower down in the root ball that he could shoot through. Jeez. <laughs> He's ready. So every, everyone scrambles prepper. for cover when they see that. Um Riddle, the soldier, he jumps behind a tree just as a bullet hits the trunk of the tree, spraying his face with shredded bark. Uh, Looking over, he sees Constable Millen take a knee, uh, aiming his rifle at the point in the roots where Johnson's rifle protruded. But before he got the shot off, a bullet from Johnson's rifle hit him right in the chest. Uh, So Riddle provides covering fire at Johnson while the two trappers drag Millen to cover behind a snowbank. When they reach the safety of the snowbank, they realize that Millen was dead uh, and that he'd been hit right in the heart and the blood coming out of his heart had frozen instantly in contact with the air. They also discovered that he had actually pulled the trigger on his shot, but that with all their traveling, a screw had worked its way loose in the action and so it jammed up before the firing pin engaged. Holy crap. So they... They tie branches over Millen's face in order to keep the birds from eating his eyes. And they lift him up onto a platform in the snow in order to keep the weasels from trying to eat his body during the night. And (laughs) darkness is falling at this point. And so it's kind of a stalemate. Johnson's in his bunker there behind the snowbank. And so they're they're literally only like five or six yards apart. Jeez. Spending the night just divided by snow and branches. In the morning, the soldier, Riddle, leaves to get help, and the trappers stay with Millen's body and to keep Johnson uh, trapped there. On February 4th, um, Ames, who Riddle had gone to, arrives with a fresh posse of trappers and finds the two, uh, the two guards with Millen's body, but they report Johnson had escaped during the night silently. Um, and they, the only tracks they find show that Johnson left his bunker and walked up the snowbank to look at Millen's body and then back to his bunker. And then they didn't find any other tracks as to where he went. So he, but he was gone. Wait, so they had tracks of him going up to view the body? Yeah. Oh they, my gosh. Because remember, they're on one side, they're sort of on the drop off of a snowbank. And then on the other side, the snowbank drifts down into the flat area where his bunker is. And so he walks up the bank to look at the to sort of look at the body that they've perched on the edge. Jeez. Oh man, this guy is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Ames troops begin searching the area. Um, once again, they you know they find bits and pieces of trail, but they never actually pick up a reliable um, track. You know, because Johnson is constantly backtracking. He's leaving false trails. At times, he would even wear his snowshoes backwards and leave parts of trail so they would go the opposite way. Oh, this guy's crafty. 
yeah, after several days of this, Ames's expedition um, got a big reinforcement, though. It was um, reinforced by Captain May, who is a Canadian fighter ace. He had actually been involved in the dogfight uh, in which the Red Baron was killed during World War I. Really? He wasn't the one who shot him down, but he was one of the planes engaging him. This is such a freaking cool story. <laughs> and so May had had been alerted by radio to what was going on, and he had flown in from Edmonton 1,300 miles away in a scouting plane to assist in the hunt. So on February 11th, awesome. <laughs> um, the and so he's trying to help them, but, you know, northern Canada, winter, so there's like snow, and there's a lot of snow swirling in the wind, so it's not been that useful. But finally, on February 11th, um, there was a day that was perfectly still and clear and May was able to spot Johnson's trail going over a ridge and um, headed towards the Continental Divide. So the Royal Canadian Mounted Police put heavy guards on the only two passes through the mountains so he couldn't get over into, uh, and head towards Alaska. The Indian trackers that they had in the ground party insisted that no one could cross the mountains alone, on foot, in a storm, with no dogs, no sled, weighted down with weapons, and with, you know, no reliable supplies. Because the eastern face of that mountain, he would have the mountains he would have to go up, was above the tree line. So there's no vegetation, no plants. It's just empty, frozen, and desolate. No, no wood to burn, no animals to hunt, and it rises about 7,000 feet. Jesus. So at this point... That, and that at this point, that part of the mountains is pretty much still unmapped because it's just so remote and so isolated and just so, you know, inhospitable that it's actually probably, the, been, you know, in this in the 30s, is pretty much still an unmapped region. Um, yeah. Wow. This is intense, dude. So Captain May had seen his trail leading right towards that massive face of the mountains, you know, a rise of 7,000 feet. And so the Indian guides, uh, they were convinced that Johnson was dead, frozen somewhere up there, and, you know, eventually they'd find his body, maybe in the spring. But, the, you know, there's just no human way to do a solo trek over that, weighted down with guns with no supplies. Yeah. But then, that night, another RCMP constable arrives by dog sled, from a trading post on the other side of the mountains. Um, so he could go through the passes, obviously, because right. you know, he's got cred. Um, <laughs> and reports that Indian hunters had found fresh tracks of a man in snowshoes coming down the western side of the mountains. Oh, my God. Johnson was still going. He 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 actually did it. The mad <laughs> lad. <laughs> Holy crap. So, yeah, and there's there's literally still no convincing explanation that anyone's come up with as to how he's able to do this because this is like one of the most formidable inhospitable places in the entire world we're literally talking a massive barren mountain at the top of canada yeah and yeah. think think about that um holy crap like how thin the air would be at that elevation and at that temperature yeah like you're worn out. I mean, it gets that cold. It gets hard to breathe, and it, it's no, already—he's he's carrying his guns, and uh, yeah, it's just—it's something else. 
This guy's a machine. So the, <laughs> Terminator. The day, He's a Terminator. <laughs> the next day, Captain May uh, flies Inspector Ames, the Soldier Riddle, and the Trapper Carl to the trading post on the other side to sort of establish a forward base while he flies reconnaissance flights around the area. Um, the western side of the mountains was shielded from the winds because the winds really came from the east mostly. And so the western side of the mountains is it's generally easier to find tracks because the snow doesn't blow around as much. Um, so that's why he was easily able to see, um, you know, he could see the tracks coming down. But mm -hmm. once they got to the bottom of the mountain, he couldn't find tracks again. Um, it's like it just flies. Johnson was well. This this is great because this we actually know exactly what he did. Um, he stopped wearing his snowshoes. He just put them on his back and he began walking only inside the tracks left by a herd of migrating caribou. He well, literally that's... is walking in caribou tracks without his snowshoes, um, and so they figure out the nearest caribou tracks to the last Johnson tracks they found. And they literally just, with the plane, follow that set of tracks because, you know, they move in a herd. And they find Johnson's tracks leaving the herd's prints 16 miles away. So he walked 16 miles in caribou tracks. Wow. I keep saying, wow. I just don't know what else to say. <laughs> there, really is, there really is nothing else you can say. To, this, uh, this is insanity. <laughs> to Albert Johnson. So... The next day, um, moving along the banks of the Eagle River, which is one of the rivers over on the other side of the mountains, a soldier named Hersey from the Posse encounters Johnson, who's backtracking to lay a false trail, like as he does. Um, and so Hersey turns to grab his rifle from his sled, and Johnson tries to scramble up the steep riverbank into the cover of the brush. And as he's doing that, Hersey opens fire joined by a trapper from the posse who was nearby and ran over when Hersey shouted. Um, but as soon as they open fire, Johnson just spins around in the middle of climbing up the bank and fires a single shot, taking out Hersey. Like, basically 360 no-scoped him. While Fucking aimbots. <laughs> wall climbing a snowbank. 360 no-scope. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, so it's... It's nuts. Um... As the posse, but, you know, there's gunshots, they're just converging on the spot from the whole area, and Johnson begins to flee up the river, firing and reloading as he runs. Um, finally, a bullet hits him in the leg, and so he drops prone and just starts unloading at a firing at the pursuers who are now encircling him. And Inspector Ames calls out one last order for him to surrender, which Johnson ignores, and so then the whole posse opens fire, He's hit nine times. Um, the, the ninth bullet finally severed his spine and ended his life. But oh. the first eight bullets, he's still just lying there returning fire. And he was never heard to utter a single, you know, groan or cry or anything. He's literally just having bullets go through. And he's just silently lying there in the snow returning fire as he's literally Jeez. just getting hit with bullets left and right. Um, the soldier who he shot actually survived because... Uh, May, with the airplane, was able to evacuate him like 300 miles to a surgeon who was able to save him. Say that again? The soldier who he 360 no-scoped survived because May, the guy with the airplane, was able to load him onto the scouting plane and fly him like 300 miles to a surgeon who could save his life. Oh, jeez. That's great. Yep, so, um... They, you know, obviously examined his body, um... According to the accounts, he 
was basically a skeleton. Um, he was like the most gaunt, skeletal-looking person anyone had ever seen. His face basically looked like a skull. Um, the contents of his pack that he had with him were a razor, a comb, a mirror, a sewing kit, fish hooks, matches, a compass, an axe, and a homemade knife, which were all neatly organized in little hand-sewn uh, moose hide cases. And then he had a lot of bullets, and he had five pearls, some gold dust, $2,410 in cash, so like thirty-five grand in today's money, and some assorted dental gold. So, you know, like bridge pieces and stuff that they use mm. in dentistry that are made out of gold. Um, but they weren't his because he, he had... Um, well, we'll get we'll get to the dental work, but he he wasn't missing anything. So where they came from is unknown. It is estimated based on his travels that he was burning something like ten thousand calories a day. Um, holy fuck! It's kind of unclear how he was surviving because he obviously couldn't shoot any game because mm -hmm. that would alert the people pursuing him. So he just could trap things and fish. But how on earth wall running? from pursuers are you going to be able to trap and fish enough food that you can burn 10,000 calories a day exactly so due to his doubling back and hidden roots and laying false trails and stuff it's impossible to say how far johnson actually traveled during the chase but there are some sections of it that are more precisely known including uh his trip over the mountains which was 85 miles in three days through a blizzard and temperatures between negative 40 and negative 50 um he seemed to average about twice the speed of the sled teams pursuing him. What? Yeah, when you look at like the distances it takes, he's somehow going about twice as fast as the sled teams. That's insanity. Yeah. Um, after his death, um, treasure hunters believed he must have been guarding some sort of secret. And so like the whole area around where he was people were searching for looking for like a hidden gold mine or maybe like a cache of loot from like a bank robbery he'd hidden or something, but nothing ever showed up. No one ever knew where the money came from. Um, it was in part Canadian money, part American money. I'm um, telling you 1930s, one Jason Bourne. <laughs> one theory was that he had a gold mine and he had a partner and he killed his partner and took his gold teeth and then when he was when the police came to question him, he thought maybe they'd figured out he murdered his partner. But that's just pure surmise that somebody thought up in like the 30s um, to try to explain why he had someone else's gold dental work. Well, um, that doesn't make, you know, no sense. That could work. Yeah, but um, his identity has never been established. Um, there is evidence of um, very high quality dental work like hmm. He had very good dental work done at some point in his life. Um, he was somewhere in his 30s when he died. Um, the isotopes in his teeth um, are consistent with either being from the Midwest, U.S., or Scandinavia. Mm. Neither those are the those are it's one of those two regions. The isotopes in his teeth are consistent with. There have been various suggestions. One guy people thought he might be was Sigvald Peterson Hoskold, who was a, uh, I think he was Norwegian, but he had dodged the draft in World War One and just fled up into Canada and was never really seen again into the mountains. And that was a couple years. Um, the last time he was heard from was like four years before Johnson showed up. So that was the, maybe that was him under a new name. There was a guy called Owen Johnson who left Nova Scotia 
at the start of the depression and said he was going to the mountains to become a trapper and was never heard from again. Uh, there was a guy named Arthur Nelson, who was a hunter and trapper from British Columbia who disappeared in 1925. who was never heard from again. Uh, there's a guy named Jonah Johnson, who was a, uh, he was a former inmate at San Quentin who was from Norway, um, who, after he got out, went into Canada and went off into the mountains and was never heard from. And so these are all people that families have thought, have suggested like, you know, like great nephews and stuff like, Oh yeah, I had a great uncle who like disappeared into the mountains around this time. Maybe that was Albert Johnson. And so there've been all these theories, but in 2009, they actually exhumed his body and that's when they found out about the dental work and were able to do DNA, DNA testing and with 100% certainty ruled out every single person who's ever been suggested as being him. Well, that's nice. At least we cleared that one. And so at the at the end of the day, um, we're left with absolutely no answers. <laughs> Who he was, how he was able to perform these apparently superhuman feats of endurance, why he was so angry, where he got all that money. Uh, there's just nothing. But at the end of the day, Aaron, if Albert Johnson can run 85 miles through negative 50 degree temperature while literally being pursued by planes and dogs, I think you're going to make it. <laughs> I'm convinced. If if I have to run, if I have to burn 10,000 calories a day, I will burn 10,000 calories a day. The show must go on. <laughs> so yeah, that's a... I, I, as I said, I, I, I dug deep, read a lot of uh, articles and accounts and stuff to try to piece together a, a narrative. So if, uh, if it's out there, I've probably read about it. So do you, ha do you have any questions about Albert Johnson that I, d I didn't cover? Oh, shit. Um, let's see. I really just want to know where he came from, but nobody knows. So that's settled. Yeah, I mean, the Millen uh, in his report said that he had a Swedish accent, um, but... You know, a Mountie station in northern Canada might not necessarily be able to differentiate a Swedish accent from, like, a Norwegian accent. Mm -hmm. So Scandinavia definitely seems like a good bet because, you know, the isotopes only are consistent with Scandinavia or the Midwest. And because he had some sort of accent, it seems like Scandinavia is that, at least, I'm pretty confident in saying he was from Scandinavia. Hmm. So was he actually insane or was he just a very determined... Uh, criminal. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, all <clears throat> all we have in terms of testimony are those few sentences from him from when Millen questioned him. And of course, Millen then died when in the gunfight. So only the stuff that's in Millen's report, you know, the I don't want people bothering me. I like to live alone. I'm not staying here. And if I'm not staying, you don't have to know about me. That That's all we have. <laughs> wow. He didn't say a single word. They have the report that he said he came from the north to the storekeeper, but he told Millen that he came from the south from the prairies. So, yeah, there's there's really nothing. And why this all went down this way is uh, kind of a, kind of a big mystery. You know, whether he even ever messed with the traps or whether they were just trying to get competition out of the way and just accidentally set out a chain of events that led to the most ridiculous manhunt in Canadian history. <laughs> This, it reminds me a lot of Ned Kelly. Uh, we covered him way back. Um, yeah. But it, those, uh, those manhunt stories tend to be like, they have all kinds of twists and turns that you never expect, and it just gets weirder as it goes along. Um, like Ned Kelly, I'm getting vague memories of something like a train full of police officers <laughs> like coming in to, 
essentially besiege uh, their hideout and that and feeling like, oh, that's like, of course, you're going to have a train full of police officers. (laughs) And one of my favorite things about this is like the random little like bits that are comedic that you're kind of in there. Like the fact that uh, King survived being shot through the stomach because he hadn't eaten because he was in a hurry because he wanted to get back for the New Year's party. Yeah. Or like um, with them like crouched on the ridge with their rifles. They're like, wait, do you have legal authority to shoot him? <laughs> no, do you have legal authority to shoot him? And they're like, crap. <laughs> this is a Cohen Brothers movie is yeah. what this is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's, it really is just a truly ridiculous story. I freaking love it. To this day, there there are no answers. Um, you know, you can you can you know people still come up with theories and stuff, but so far every suggestion um, of an actual identity has been ruled out by the DNA testing. That is so. Whew! I love a good mystery, and that's a pretty funny mystery. So how do, how does this square with the pirate theory? Uh, I, I kind of backed out on the pirate thing because he seemed to be really specialized in navigating on land. Land, yeah, that's, like, very, very mm-hmm. special. It's just the, like, that whole thing with the false trails yeah. that he would then be camping in, like, a lookout point over where he'd left the trail. And, like, that's just... I just don't even... Like, what... the the This man must have had some ridiculous background to just have this level of sort of bushcraft and survival skills. That's why I'm saying he's a spy, like, or special forces. But yeah, like, <laughs> what is there to spy on in anywhere that has a climate like this climate that he's apparently super well adapted to survive in? I mean, I'm not saying he's he's doing the spying then. I'm saying he was a spy who learned to survive in any environment, and then he learned no, too th- much. This, this environment is so ridiculous. I feel like you can only learn how to work in this environment by specifically trying to learn to work in this environment. I don't think it's transferable. All right, I guess like that's true. Like following, but... like walking in caribou tracks and... Yeah. Like it's... Yeah, I don't know. It's... Just, it's, it's a mystery. Terminator? He was said yeah, to have a... Have a, a, a... What, a Swedish accent? Yeah. Which, What's you know, Schwarzenegger? Is he an Austrian? Austrian, yeah. Oh, maybe... Maybe... Maybe he was Arnold Schwarzenegger. His face, you know, was stiff... As if he were constantly struggling with the hostility that came seething to the surface. That sounds like... uh, Old-timey newspaper writing was great. It was actually good. (laughs) They actually, like, had passed fifth-grade English. (laughs) Oh, man. Learn to code. (laughs) Learn to weld. Oh, shit. Learn to survive in 50 below zero temperatures while being pursued by the military. Learn to eat Hot Pockets with your raccoon in a cabin while you're bombarded with yeah. dynamite. Learn to turn your 10-foot-wide cabin into a World War One fortress. I know how he survived. He ate the raccoon. Oh, God. <laughs> how many calories would you get from eating a raccoon? Because... We're talking 10,000 calories a day for weeks. And are they technically stolen calories? Because (laughs) raccoons are little thieves? The circle of life. (laughs) When the dynamite was going off, I could just see him and they're like, he's holding the raccoon and he turns away and he goes, we'll all be over soon, Quincy. (laughs) (laughs) I I love, I think the funniest part um, was them discovering that he had, like, literally built that shed to be a holdout position. Yeah, exactly. Like, 
eight by ten feet and yet had you know a trench system and bunker so it's like there there could not have been any room for anything but defenses in there like where did like the gamer chair go <laughs> <laughs> well shit thanks for telling that story dude I thought you thought you were ready to hear it. I have <laughs> I have gained so much from from also, hearing oh, it. Oh, before before we we end, it's also worth noting the whole thing. He had scoliosis, like he literally had a physical impairment. Oh right. Imagine, and um, there was oh yeah, one of his feet was longer than the other. <laughs> like he he was physically deformed, and yet was also like the most hardcore like survival beast of all time. Imagine <laughs> what this man would have been like at 100%. Like seriously, God had to nerf his character because he was so OP. He literally would have taken on all of Canada if he hadn't had a crooked spine and an oversized foot. Did you ever see the, uh, the twilight zone episode where the, where the uh, wild West criminal gets transported into the future by some scientist? And he, like, goes out in the streets, and he's almost driven insane by modern life, so he just robs a liquor store. <laughs> uh, and then comes back and kills the scientist who, uh, I can't remember exactly how it goes. But I was just like, if this guy got sucked out of some, you know, if he got sucked into the modern day, I wonder what he'd do. <laughs> would he just become Batman? <laughs> or, or would he join that elite, select group of heroes who preserve the values and ideals of our civilization and yes i refer to the gamers <laughs> he would join the gamer total gamer albert johnson was a total gamer i could i could just see as he's a <laughs> so i'm sorry but as the door is being battered in and he's about to shoot the guy through the door he just turns to the camera and says i'm about to do what's called a pro gamer move <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shit. Oh, man. Wow. Okay. I had a blast with that one. I'm going to ask you to do that again, because that was so in-depth. Uh, yeah, as I said, I went a little crazy. On yeah. The, like, yeah. <laughs> I think I think it's a, a very different flavor from what we're used to with our historical coverage. Oh, you, um, what, you mean it's actually good? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you come to my history lab... <laughs> No, you did such a good job. You can stay in that broom closet and smoke your pipe and browse your memes all you want. Thank you. I'll protect you from the uh, from the deans. Excellent. Um, and we can build a trench somewhere in the history lab. In the history lab, good. Good. Yep, absolutely. Perfect. Well, I'm going to close the door now. All right. Well, I would say it's been fun, but it hasn't. <laughs> Mostly, I just want you to get out of my way so I can keep smoking. Ah, <laughs> oh, the things we do for our kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right. So consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo. That's at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of the Mad Trapper play you out.
Dude, white people are weird.